You're listening to How Do You Decide with Megan Stafford, a podcast that explores how the decisions we make shape us, the crossroads, the difficult choices, and how sometimes the smallest decisions can have the biggest impact. Join me as I meet everyday Aussies and find out about their lives, the decisions that changed them, and how they coped along the way. This week on the podcast... So I realised that, you know, we were driving out the unit, I'd forgotten about um, Peter, who wanted to come with us, so I, um, instead of putting the blinker to turn right, I turned left, and that changed the whole course of my life. That's the voice of Sam Bailey. In 1987, at the age of 19, Sam became a C6, C7 quadriplegic in a road accident. The thing is, while Sam's life has undoubtedly been shaped by his mate quadriplegia, it is just that, a mate, one part of the entire person that makes up Sam. Sam is a quadriplegic, yes. He's also really charismatic as well as warm, the kind of person that puts you at ease with his encouraging smile and genuine interest in you. I can't lie, I fell in love with Sam Bailey. This is probably the appropriate time to mention Sam's wife, Jenny, who I now also harbour a significant crush on. If you were an avid radio listener in the 90s, and who among us wasn't, you may recognise Jenny's voice as that of Jenny Black, former ABC rural reporter. Jenny is lively, her energy infectious, and she's a creative talent. Most striking of all, even though she cares for and helps Sam with things the majority of us would take for granted, Jenny's still her own person. You hear Sam speak or you pick up the book he wrote with Jenny, Head Over Heels, and because they start with his accident, it's easy to think of them as his story alone. But that's what's inspiring about Sam and Jenny. They've made a life doing everything together while maintaining their own identities. They've made it their story. And because of that, this episode is split into two parts. First, you'll hear from Sam alone, and later you'll hear from both Sam and Jenny together. Sam Bailey. So I was jackarooing, it was the second year out of school, I was jackarooing on a big cattle station, Avon Downs on the Barkley Tablelands. And... um, and I always just want to be a farmer. It never left me at any stage from the time I came out of the womb, I think. And um, so I was, I'd finished my schooling and I thought I'd have two or three years out in the big wide world to grow up and learn the true value of a $5 note. So second year out of school, work at Avon. One afternoon there wasn't a lot going on, so I thought we'd I'd bust the boredom by talking a couple of mates into a car trip to Camelwell for a beer. Seemed like a great idea at the time, so we um, we assembled mid-afternoon, fun and excitement, um, climbed into, the, into this car, shut the doors, drove out the station entrance road, turned right onto the Barclay Highway. Jimmy Barnes was screaming, we were all screaming, we were on our way for a ton of fun. But um, 15 minutes later, my whole life changed. You know, we, we had a blowout, we were flying, we had a blowout in the front passenger side tire of the car, the car rolled several times, I was the passenger in the back seat, didn't have a seatbelt on, was thrown out the back window and and came to lying on the side of the road. I, I knew straight away at this time, you know, it was a little bit more, things weren't quite right here and um, I remember my first words to a couple that had obviously pulled up and had walked over and kneeling down beside me, I said to them, Jesus, I hope I don't spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. So I guess I was preparing myself pretty early on for what was about to become reality. 
So the, I was flown from the crash site by the Royal Flying Doctor to Mount Isa where it was the, the injury was, um, the diagnosis was eventually made and a pretty simple one, three or four little cuts on my left arm, a dislocated right hip and a broken neck. I'd severed my spinal cord completely, now leaving me a quadriplegic, which, which basically means I limited use of my arms and hands. You know, I'm paralysed from the waist down, so I had no movement from a from a waist from a chest down. No bowel and bladder control. I can't I can't regulate my body temperature anymore. So I'm very hot in summer and very cold in winter. Um, and I've now only got about forty five percent of my lung capacity left because obviously I've got a fair portion of my muscles that are paralysed around my lungs. Does that deteriorate, Sam, like over time? No, well, that... it's probably got a little bit stronger, but it, okay. it, it's, it, yeah, it's all about the body adjusting. And, yeah. But I can't cough or sneeze or, and, you know, you get something caught in your throat and you guys are just cough and cough it up, but I just haven't got the capacity to, so you're practically choked, you can get rid of it. And sneezing. Or yell or, you know, just all those where you need lung capacity. Sneezing, you know, I have this atrocious little sneeze. Sounds like a pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pathetic one too, so you're safe with me. Mm. Yeah. And um, so I was placed in traction later on the Royal Flying Doctor the following morning and arrived at the spine unit at at, um, at the PA hospital in Brisbane. And I just remember it being a, it was just a shattering blow to go from being a, what are you, you're six foot tall, you're bulletproof, you're, you know, at 19, you're bigger, stronger, faster than Superman whole life ahead of you, your life's life. just starting. Yeah, you know? your world at your feet. Yeah. And to be pushed into a spine, a body on a bed, and it was, at that stage, I was completely helpless. It was pretty hard to cop, but I guess as I found out, and, and I now know, tragedy, bad luck, mishap, accident, diagnosis, I don't know, call it what you might is unfortunately a part of life and at some stage every one of us will be confronted with it and i suppose the easiest thing to do in any in any tragedy is to look back because it's easy why us why me it's not fair why didn't have a seatbelt on what if what if what, what if? if you can go on forever mm. but you will start digging yourself into a rut mm. and the more you look back the deeper the rut gets the hardest thing to do is to stand back up pick up whatever pieces are left and then soldier on. Because unfortunately, this wonderful thing called life doesn't stop. Yeah. To pick you up, pat you on the back. You know, the sun will go down this afternoon, it's back up again tomorrow. Tomorrow is a, is a new and fresh day, and as hard and as bloody tough as it might be, life rolls along. So in order for me to roll along, I had to come to some acceptance, and, and it was a matter of saying, well, bad luck, mate. Wrong place at the wrong time. There's no rewinding the clock now. Be grateful that you're still here, and after all, a lot of people don't get that choice. Yeah. Uh, okay, you're pretty severely maimed now, but the doctors had said I'd stood a chance of leading a, a reasonably independent life. So, you know, when I weighed it all up and I broke it all down, it was either swim or sink, mm. and and I chose to swim. Yeah, and I mean the accident itself uh, was so freakish that there were so many choices that were made. Because you were going to go in your car, but then there was another guy wasn't there, and so then you end up going in his instead. Oh, look, it was that was eerie too. You know, we're going in my ute, so I had two guys from the station, and and um, and then we realised that this guy said, "Look, if you're going in, can you come and pick me up too?" So I realised that 
you know, we were driving out in the ute, and I'd forgotten about um, Peter, who wanted to come with us. And I said to the guy, so I look better. So I, um, instead of putting the blinker to turn right, I turned left. And that changed the whole course of my life. So we went down. We got down there. Of course, four of us weren't going to fit my ute. So we transferred to his car. And he said, oh, I hardly got any petrol. So we siphoned a jerry can, a bit of garden hose. So we siphoned some petrol out of mine and put it in his. And, and it all climbed in. And so, yeah, no, it was um, all that's all a bit freakish, isn't it? Yeah. Do you ever, or in that time when you were in the spinal unit as well, did you ever sort of temper those thoughts where you were like, what if, or why me? No, not really, because you can't do anything about the past. Yeah. You know, it's not... And look, I, people people want to know, how, how, do you, how do you get on, how do you move on, how do you be so positive, and how do you not look back, and how do you not get depressed? And Well, I grew up on a farm, and... Growing up on a farm, you're exposed to life and death from a very early age. So you grow up knowing that things aren't always going to go right. We, you know, we had pets as kids. I remember they, they give you hours and hours and hours of pleasure, but they get run over and they get bit by snakes and they have to be put down. And, and you see that with livestock. And, and I watched mum and dad cope with fires, floods and droughts. And, but, you know, they never gave up. I'd never see them give up, you know, the crops wiped out or dad would say, oh, well, you know, the rain will help next year's crop and, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll go again. And that was, the, I, I grew up with that and I think it's, if it's entrenched in a very, very young age, I had that right through my life, you know, and when things would go bad, I'd always try and find something good in something bad. And I've done that the whole way through, including lying in a bed in a spine and think, well, I'm still here. The bloke over the road has got no movement for his neck down and will be 24-7 care for the rest of his life. Well, I've got two part arms that still work a bit. You know, I'm pretty lucky, What really. you do have, not what you don't have. Exactly. I guess focusing on yeah, that. Yeah, that's what you do. It's not all about... It, it's easy to, to dig yourself into a rut. And the hardest thing is to um, is to keep pushing forward, but... Look, we crap. When I first got home from the spine unit, it was really, it was hard in the sense that mum and dad had only seen me for, you know, I was in the unit for about five months and they only seen me twice or maybe three times. But, and, and not, not that they didn't want to, but they had a farm to run. I had a younger brother and sister that were being at school. You know, they had, they had plenty of things to do. And I had a pretty amazing girlfriend at the time and she was with me every weekend. So I knew that he wasn't up there sitting in a room by himself. But anyway, though, initially I was told that someone of Sam's level will be in the spinal unit for eight or nine months. And um, we were all in the office when they, when they told us that. And I remember thinking to myself, there's nobody away in the world, I'm staying here that long. So mum and dad went away thinking they had, you know, eight or nine months. And then we phoned in just under five months to say, we can't do any more for Sam. And he is as independent as we can possibly get him and time for the doors to open. So mum and dad drove up. It was a five-hour five drive, six-hour drive to Brisbane. Dad reversed the car into a loading dock at the spine unit. In went a bar chair that was in six or eight pieces. A um, garbage bag with a sheepskin and a spare cushion from a wheelchair. Um, a bag with, which had my clothes that I've been using for the, while I've been up in the spine unit. I had a box on my lap of, um, and in it was some catheters and some medication and two A4 pages of do's and don'ts when you've got a spinal cord injury. 
So I tra- I remember I transferred, and I'd only just started learning to transfer into a car, so it was, I mean, I got halfway across and sort of lost my balance and fell a bit, but I managed to get myself into the seat. The physio was there that showed Dad how to fold the chair up because he hadn't had anything, you know, hadn't seen anything. Well, I had nothing to do with any of that sort yeah. of equipment. He threw it in the back, walked around, hopped in, and we waved goodbye to the spine unit. And I, I just remember being absolutely bloody terrified the whole way home, just going through bowel, bladder, pressure sores, sheepskin, medication. Uh, it just went over and over, and, and I can tell you that there was it was a very silent trip home. We got home, it was dark when we got home, so Dad did have trouble putting the chair back together, but I tried to explain as best I could. He then pushed me across the grass. Um, because they'd been caught out, they only, they were only partway through doing an accessible bathroom for me and hadn't got around to the ramps at all, so I then had to instruct Mum and Dad how to pull me up, to try, I think it was two or three stairs to get into the house. Okay, Dad, you get behind me, and Mum, you get in the front, and we'll go backwards and tip me up, Dad, and... Mum, you just guide the chair as it goes up. and I mean, God knows what was going through their head at the time. And such so, a change from, like, the ego of a 19-year-old. Oh, you he know? Was num- and then now you've got to just have the humility of asking for help. And, you oh. know, your parents, you know, you've just won your freedom, you know, your independence, really, and then you, you're there. Mum, Dad, pick me up. Mm. And I don't think Dad was ever the same again after, you know, you're the number one eldest son who's going to, who's going to build rockets and fly to the moon, you know, yeah. and here he is in a chair. So they pulled me up into the veranda, my bedroom was up the other end, and I sort of wheeled up there into my old bedroom for the first time and just being hit for six. My saddle was hanging up on a rack, a surfboard and water ski in one corner, a cricket bat over in the other corner. I wheeled over to a rack where my footy boots were, and I remember grabbing them and putting them on my lap for the first time, and that's when it really buddy hit you that there'd be no more rugby. And Dad was a wallaby and I would have loved to have, well, it was in, you know, a plan, have a crack at following his footsteps, but that was all, that dream was now smashed. I couldn't do anything. I had no way of getting on the farm. I had no car. So basically I was housebound. Did you feel just so angry? Not as well as oh, sad was just, or just... Oh, just never depressed, never angry, just frustrated, so yeah. frustrated. But the biggest thing, and that I'm probably more aware of it now in spawning units, but back then you're not, you're not taught that when, when you go home, Sam, things are going to be different. People are going to look at you and not, won't, not, not know what to say and, and, and you're going to have to get used to commanding your life from a wheelchair now. And, it's, it, it, um, and I wasn't prepared for that. I remember going to a 21st one, one Saturday night and all my mates, and I hadn't seen them since I left school, all my mates are going to go, I'm really so excited. You know, this was going to be a bit of a highlight for the last yeah. five months. And I'll, I'll never, I wheeled into this, I sort of wheeled in through a gate into where, where the party was happening and there was just this horrible silence. They didn't know what to say or do or here was, here was some gladiator Sam that, you know, they all knew in a, in a chair. And I just remember coming home so depressed. Well, not depressed, but just the realisation De- that... Defeat or deflated, I guess. Right? Oh, deflated, just, but, yeah. the, but I think the realisation that, shit, my life has really changed. Yeah. Because you know, I'd never really given any thought to that, to the emotional part of the whole the whole accident as well. So there it was in the absolute prime of my life, 19, um, the horrible realisation my life now was never going to be the way it was. My body from my chest down was never, ever going to do what it once did. 
but we're still going to come along for the ride with me and be absolutely no help. I realised that I had a massive, massive challenge ahead of me if, if I was going to try and make some sort of life for myself on the land. But I was never going to give up. There's no bloody way in the world I was going to let a spinal cord injury get in the road of, you know, the, the life, this life that I wanted. So your sense of adventure, you obviously have a great sense of humour. Yeah, know, like all, all that. those things That's that you right. don't mm. you don't lose, but they just, I guess, change. Yep, they do totally. But I think the big thing for me was totally frustrated until I just thought if I can find a way to get around, I can do stuff. You know, I can go up and start that pump. I can go down and get the mail out of the mailbox. I can. Give that lift up the power. I was seeing all these things I could do, but, but I just didn't have any. I had no form of getting around, and I had a little four buggy that Dad had bought for me when I first got home, which was great. Got you out of the chair. You're able to release a bit of tension. You know, 500 miles an hour up and down that airstrip, but it was hopeless as far as you know. It was too low. It was only a one. You couldn't take your dogs with you. It's just so I realised that it wasn't really going to be the thing. And then one afternoon, Dad arrived home with a full motorbike on the back of his ute. And I'd given these bikes some thought, because they're only just out. You know, these quad runners had just entered the market. And I'd given them some thought, but how in the bloody hell do you get on it? And then how do you operate it? And Dad, anyway, Dad said to me, look, mate, I know what you're going to say, but I was around the bike shop in town. The owner there was a mate of ours. Said to Dad, look, why don't you take one of these bikes home for Sam? And before Dad could say, look, you know, you might you might look at him, but he's a lot more disabled. Do you think? You know, there's there's, there's a lot more happening underneath Sam than you realise. Anyway, as I said before, he could say anything. It was on the back of his head. So he, Dad said, "Look, I know it. As I said, I know what you're going to say, but I'll unload it. I'll, get it. I'll put it in the shed. I've got to go back into town next Thursday. I'll load it back up and take it back in." And that was it. You know, that was that was okay. Right, on, full stop. Anyway, the next morning I got. I remember getting up and getting dressed and I wanted to get something out of the shed. So I wheeled up into the shed, a bit like this, wheeled up into the shed and this bike was sitting in. And I looked at it. I thought, I had a cracker getting on this thing. So I pulled up beside it and it was a daunting transfer to get my bum up in the seat. I mean, they don't, they don't teach you stuff like that in the spine unit. You know, my transfers today were from wheelchair to bar chair, wheelchair, bed, wheel, bar chair back to bed, bed to Level the wheelchair. Level. All of a sudden, Sam's got one up here. Anyway, I thought I'm going to give it a crack. My first three or four attempts failed. I lost my balance, fell out of my chair, fell on the concrete floor. But I managed to pull myself back under my chair. And then I remember on my fifth or sixth go, I actually went bum up under the seat. And I'll tell you what, it must have been a, <laughs> must have been a picture and a half. <laughs> anyway, so I pushed myself up really quickly. And I quickly grabbed hold of the handlebars. And, and obviously my arms gave this trunk some leverage and, and I felt, I thought, oh, I feel quite safe and there, yeah, I So I sat there for a moment. I thought, well, okay, you got this far, better keep going. So I grabbed my right leg and I, I sort of threw it over the bike best I could and sat back up again and adjusted myself. It was a Suzuki motorbike, so I started up and the reverse mechanism was just a lever that you pull between your legs. So I pulled into reverse, and I very slowly backed out of the shed, pushed the lever forward. It hadn't been modified at that stage, and they were, this was a gear machine. A lot of them are automatic now, but this had, it was a five-gear machine. So I reached down, and again, I nearly fell off the bike, reaching down to 
grab this gear stick and I pulled it up into first or second gear. I can't remember now. And, and sat back up and I thought, oh, well, here you guys. I reckon I went about 10 metres and I had a 10 metre smile on my face. I'd, um, I'd found my legs. So Dad had to take the old one back to town, but had to bring a new one home. And But it was just this, uh, it just opened up an enormous door. All of a sudden now I could get up in the morning, get dressed, have a brekkie, grab my dogs, go and move all the cattle, go up and start a pub, as I said, go down and get the mail, give that lift up the paddock, a little slasher for the front of it, a spray rig for the back of it. And it got the wheel turning. And and, um, and I think it just gave me a, a, an enormous lift, you know, because all of a sudden now you feel part of the team again rather than a, a bit of a freeloader. And that was, again, that was another thing that I had to get through, realising that you know, you're only, you can't do anything to help anyone. And, and then things just started happening. Got my first car with hand controls, got me back on the road. So all of a sudden now I could, yeah, I could go anywhere I wanted to. Were you ever scared? I mean, oh, I mean no, you not seem pretty all. fearless with those kinds of things, but for me... No, I, I loved yeah, it. And yeah. I've loved the challenge. Never scared. No, I just can't wait to see what's going to happen. So I got the car that got me on the road, converted all the machinery, seven different machines and devised a little hoist to get myself up into the cabin. So all of a sudden now I could... I could um, partake in all the cropping activities. Which is just so amazing that the guy that modified the hoist, I just love that people love to get involved as well because they want to contribute as well. Well, that's what I found too. And it's, it's, and I say to a lot of people, don't, don't be fearful for asking for help. Yeah. Because you actually involve them and yeah. they get pleasure out of helping. Like we all get pleasure. I think one of the greatest and the greatest thrills and enjoyment you can get is not just helping yourself, but it's helping someone else. Yeah. Wow. You know, I've just helped you and you can ride that bike. Yeah. Wow. You know, how good's that? Yeah, you're part of it. It's connection again, It's connection. Isn't it? It's yeah. connection with people. And, and I've just found, and, and I'd found that out very early on. And, and the guy that modified the machine and the hoist for me, he, he just, it, it took him to another level too. I mean, he drove home wanting to build a rocket and fly the moon too. <laughs> After seeing Sam... You know, he's modified the dozer and Sam was on it when I left and he's pushing over a tree and, yeah. wow, you know, I've helped him do that. So it's one of the things that I tell people, don't don't be frightened in just asking someone for a bit of help because yeah. you actually include them. And But I think that there's so much fear or, or vulnerability, you know, or I'm going to make myself vulnerable to, you know, asking Jenny, you know, is there something here? I'm going to make myself vulnerable by asking for help. But then... We don't go fall over yeah. and stand back up again. Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah, don't be frightened to go out on another limb. What do you got to lose? Yeah. Nothing. That's right. No, if it, and look, if it doesn't work, and I've, in speaking to kids now, it's one of my, it's one of the most important messages I pass on is the motorbike. The morning I went over and I had a go and I fell out and I had another go and I fell out and I had another, but then I got on. So don't just try something once. Yeah. You know, keep it, whether it be mentally or physically, have a crack. I feel like your person though and but I guess everyone can choose their thoughts is okay I'm not going to let you beat me now like once you one oh, time yeah, you know once, then you're absolutely. like you know what yeah screw you S- someone's sort of yeah that's right it's like waving a bloody red wag yeah. at a bull yeah, yeah someone yeah. says you can't do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'll tell you what there's no greater feeling to go away and do something and somebody can come back and show me you've done it and I'm a classic example it was when I was learning to fly the ultralight um, many years ago there was a guy who was adamant he was a pilot himself and was you know, up himself pretty well and was adamant. Oh, you know, he had this ego and oh, quadriplegic, you can't fly a plane. No, 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 you've got to be 
be like me, you know, go to the table and smart and know what you're doing and oh right, yeah, okay. No, oh, no, you just just can't be done, Sam. So I anyway, that was and another lesson I tell kids, you know, you'll get people telling you, you can't do things. Use that it's Oh buddy, how long gonna go away and come back and show them you've done it. So I'll never forget the morning that I landed in front of this bloke. <laughs> well I've never seen him again. But no, I think once you train your brain to to always, you, you, you never look back. But it's a practice as well, isn't it? There'll be the good times where you're like on, yeah, a, on good a good times. run and then there's another new frustration yeah. and then your brain that can slip back and then you've got to go again, I guess. Yeah, and look, I've got to be honest. I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to, you know, some of the early days when I first came home with the spine, it would, would just, just collapsed around, you know, the whole world collapsed around me and, and it was, you know, I got home, I got a bladder infection, so I, was, I remember spending days in bed jammed full of antibiotics. I burnt myself really bad in the shower one night, which took months to heal again, trying to get used to that sensation. Um, I had bowel accidents, which were, ter- you know, terribly embarrassing at three o'clock in the morning. You have to yell out for your mother to come over and clean you up after your bowels are worked in bed. Um, I could go on, but I, I had to get through those days, and two things helped me a lot. The first was laughter and humour. I found that if I fell out of bed trying to get dressed, I just laugh. <laughs> right, mate, you beat me today, but Jesus Christ, look out tomorrow. <laughs> and the other thing that I invented, and it's probably it's a little bit of an analogy um, from the bush, I suppose, and it's what I call jumping the fence. And what I mean by that is when it all goes pear-shaped in your own paddock, or so you think, jump over the fence yeah. into someone else's paddock. And, you know, for 20 or 30 seconds, I'd just give a bit of thought to the turmoil happening around the world at the time, uh, the wars, the, the poverty, the hunger, the terrorism, the millions of people living in refugee camps. There were days I wouldn't leave the shores of this country. I was just thinking about all the people, you know, dealing with the loss of loved ones and tragic accidents, and all the people battling terminal illnesses. Um, there, were, there were some days I'd just jump back to the spine and I think I remember telling about this guy in the bed across the road, across the room where I was, he um, thought that Gary had no movement from his neck down and would be 24-7 care for the rest of his life. And I remember um, and I remember him being so, so disabled that he had a little machine called a respirator that sat under his electric chair that would help him breathe for the rest of his life. And I remember we were on the, um, we were on the deck I think we were having a beer one afternoon or something with him and, and I remember him saying to me, Sam, I'm just bloody terrified this machine's going to stop because I just can't breathe by myself. So what's your very bloody quick you do? Jump back out of the fence. And all of a sudden falling out of bed or, or a day or two in bed with a bladder, it's so bloody insignificant. Sun goes down, back up again in my own way, you go again. If tomorrow wasn't any better, well, the next day it would be. You know. And I still use those today. I, yeah, I still, not that, I'm pretty well trained now after 34 years, but look, I, I'll be honest, I still have days that go to shit, total shit, you know, and and I've broken legs, I've broken my pelvis, and I've, I've, had, I've spent a lot of time in bed over the years. But it's makes you appreciate the great life you've got, yeah. and it's not the end of the world, you know. It's no. not, you live in a fantastic country, you've, and I think, yeah, well, I mean, there's a saying that always someone worse off than you are, and, and it's right, but I just use those little tools, that little jump in the fence every now and then just to, 
and it very quickly changes here. Yeah. In your head. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think that with quadriplegia, because you lose so much of your function of your body, suddenly what you're left with is your mind. Yeah. You know? And so, I mean, you've sort of pushed your body and been able to use it again, but I think that what your greatest gift is is that I feel like you've mastered your mind, which is like one of the hardest things. Well, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say master because I guess it will, will always be, you know, something new for the brain to play a trick on you or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, you, you figured out how to get the head right. Yeah, you can live, that's, you know, that's like right. that's how you live. Yeah, exactly right. And um, look, I, I, I don't know, maybe I was very lucky to have some sort of inner strength when I had my accident to... Yeah, and I pull myself through my own bit of bad luck, but then I think I've found my purpose now, and that is yeah. to go out and share this story with people that from all walks of life. And I guess we were on the program Australian Story many years ago, and and it was for me personally realizing because of the response we'd had, and, and eighty percent of the response had come from people that had suffered with some sort of life changing hardship at home, yeah. and they'd seen our story and thought, well, if he can do it, we can too. So I, I think. And it wasn't up because you know, people so high, oh, so inspirational, Sam, and you say this, and yeah, 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 you know. But I think me personally seeing that made me think to myself, well, maybe you have, maybe someone up there is looking down, maybe it was all meant to happen, and you know, you were meant to be cut down and do some hard yards to get your show back on the road, but now, you know, your, your purpose is now to go out and help other people through theirs. And I, I, I'm just, I'm a great believer in people. Some people like myself will, will get through tragedy quickly. Some won't. But I, I, I just know over the years that some people just need someone to hold their hand for five minutes who have been in a situation of, of, of tragedy of their own of some sort. You know, and, and I'm not blaming Trump here, but I know I have got a lot of lives back on the road just by saying, look, it's not the end of the world and you'll be able to do this and do that and technology's on your side now and you've got a wonderful supportive family and you will go out to inspire people as I am, you know, when you're down the track a little bit. And you, like me, will look back one day, I'm sure, and and say, I'm never, I don't want to go back to my whole life. And I think they all think you're nuts. Because that happened to me leaving the spine when I did. There was an old bloke there who'd been in a chair and we'd um, we'd cracked this pretty good relationship and over the time that I was there. and He said that to me as I left. He said, one day, Sam, you'll never want to go back to your old life. And I remember thinking to myself, you are bloody nuts, mate. You are nuts. I know exactly what he meant. But I think also that that gift that you give people of like them being able to see what kind of life you, you live now and, and, and hearing those words would no doubt be comfort. But I also think because you're someone that can actually sit with people's pain because you've, yeah. you know, and, and know what it feels like for people to be uncomfortable mm. with tragedy, but mm. you're comfortable with it because you've lived mm. it. Mm. So I think that sometimes people just need someone that can sit with them yeah. and be okay with them not being okay. That's right. As, as I said to you this morning, that I think because I open up to my story, I, it gives permission for them to open up and, and they just want to talk. They just want to say, look, this is what happened to me and, and it's and, and not only it's everything now. It's it's parents who've had a child suicide. It's people going through with cancer. People have had all sorts of hardship. What do you say? Do you say things to them, or is it more just listening? Do you think? No, you listen. I listen. Yeah. It's a spur of a moment thing. I say when you're talking to people well, that's just about authenticity. I guess isn't yeah. it? You're just like whatever comes yeah, whatever to mind is, is what they need. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And they walk away with a smile on their face, and well, you know, if if you can do that, we'll say be it. As I said to you this morning too, the COVID last year sort of 
put a halt to all the speaking. And and for a little while it was we'd been doing it for twenty years, and and we were starting to get a little bit worn out because it's you know I love being with people, but you do get you do get people tired after a little while because you're always on show and and you're always and it's a lot to. When you're holding that space for someone, like that's a you know, like it's a well, great you, feeling. But yeah, you paid to perform, yeah, and you can yeah. make or break a conference, yeah. and so there's a bit of pressure there. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to, yeah, I haven't had anything thrown at me yet, but <laughs> not yet anyway. But anyway, once once it starts happening, we'll know. Twenty twenty one. Who knows? <laughs> back to the farm. Yeah. Um, but we had twelve months off, and it, it was great to sort of catch your breath, and and great for Jen to sort of. As I said to you this morning, also she, I hopped off the stage and she hopped on there and can do what she wants to do. You know, she loved it. But we had our first talk in Bundaberg a few weeks ago, and we just we came home and said, "Oh, that was great, so good." Not for the speaking, but just some of the people we met. And I think the difference she can make. And we we now we have this web of mates all around the country that we make. So I think we we have found out that we have missed it. So we're back on the road now. We're getting. You know, we're getting, we've got three or four in the pipeline now. and So that's great. Lots of schools and kids. You can have a really impact on a kid. And Jen and I couldn't have our own kids. And at the time we were, you know, because that, the expectation of family and mates and the wide world is, you, you know, you're here to breed and have kids. And we, we couldn't, we went through, we couldn't do it naturally. We went through IVF and we did only try once. But we had, we had a failure and, I remember being in our bedroom one morning and we had to make a decision because we had, she had some eggs on ice that we had to, and again, we, um, instead of going right, we went left and decided that, well, hey, maybe this door's going to shut and maybe it'll shut for a reason and maybe that's not the road we're meant to go down and something will happen. Well, two days later, we were asked to speak at a school in Warrialda. So now we just feel as though we've got a whole country of kids to, yeah. to get out there and, and you know, I, I just pass on that. You know, there's a word resilience, which I hate, was never around when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I would have no idea how to spell it either, but <laughs> um, I think it was toughness when, when I was about, you know, in our younger years. And so I'm just trying to, through my story again, just show, look, one day something bad will happen, but it's not the end of the world, you know. And mm. so you share your story, and I can see that, you know, oh, I'm like Sam. I'm growing up on a farm, and I want to be a farm. But one day something bad might happen, but I'll just think of Sam, and he got through yeah. it. So I reckon I can get through it too. Yeah. So I'm we've so... got this whole web of kids that send us Christmas presents and ring us every I now and then. That. Oh, it's pretty special. I'm really sorry that. You... No, yeah, look, that, that door... no, we're not. We're not. We weren't meant to go down that road. You know, and, and look, having kids would be like, I've seen all mates around me having the pleasure and the enjoyment. And of course, you know, who's going to look after general when we get old? And But nothing in life is perfect. Nothing in life there's is... There's no right way to, no, you know, like you don't have to tick the box, no, you know, like no. to have a good life, do you? No. And again, through speaking, you, you often get couples coming up that say having difficulty having kids and, and some people just go on for years and years and years. And I just say to them, look, don't be scared to shut that door because others will open, as they have with us. You know, and they can see that. And, and as you said, you know, nothing in life is perfect. No. Our life's not perfect and your life's not perfect, no. but you, 
you make the best of what you got in the row you went to, went to go down. But it's such a. But then that's what makes it enjoyable, don't you think? All of the different edges and cracks and things that have happened. That's what makes things that your ability to be able to connect with other people. Yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah. I mean, how insufferable if you only hear you know those people that just tell you all the good that things that have happened to them. You can't you can't connect with someone when you're only hearing no. you know. No, and some people do that. Some people will never. They won't ever tell you. I'll tell you all the good things. I won't tell you. Go through a divorce, and you know I'm, I'm drinking too much grog, and I've got a problem here, and my business is going fat. And, yeah, you but know, you wonder it, why. Like I, I guess it's fear of mm. you not being accepted. You know, we get in our own way so much about this perceived idea of how we're supposed to live or how life is supposed to look, but you can't. You're not in control, no, are you? Not at all. No. You can't control what will be. You can't control what has been. All you can make sense of is mm. how you want to show up today. Mm. That's right. And it's and I, I think the biggest thing that I've learnt, and I've learnt two things. I, I mean, I've learnt many things over my life, some in the easy way, some in the hard way, but probably the, the two biggest things I've learnt, I learnt both these at the age of 19 while lying in a bed in a spine with a broken neck. The first is the, um, the incredible importance of your family, your mates um, and the community you live in because... What did I see? Mum and Dad that dropped everything on beside my bed. Mm. Brother and sister did the same. All my mates were ringing, writing, trying to do what they could. I wasn't I wasn't privy to it at that time, but little did I know that at home, all our all our friends around here were rallying to help Mum and Dad as best they could. It was a bloody big wake up call. I didn't see anything I had to have beside the bed, and anything I wanted. So I remember all the things at the bottom of my list went to the top and all the things at the top came down to the bottom. And the other thing that I learnt, and, and it probably rolls off the back, is that I then started appreciating everything I have, not what I haven't got. Mm. And it is very, very, very easy today to forget what you've, what you've got because we're all so focused on, you know, we've got to have the big house and we've oh, got to have the fit, design yeah. issues and we've got to have the, and we've got to, and we've got to, we've got to have and we've got to have and, when you forget what you want, what you've got. So anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a. I pinch myself often to think I can't believe this amazing life that I have, and and it's not finished yet. No. And that's that's the exciting thing about life. You never know what's around the corner, and and we've got some dreams and goals that are all happening now. And who knows where that's going to take us, you know? And, and but we love the farm here at Cropper Creek. You know, it's we just we love getting back here and. It's our own little bit of paradise, and we tuck it away here, and and we are writing another book, and you know we'll keep pursuing this speaking while we think we can make a difference. Yeah, helicopter. Um, but the other big goal is yeah to be the first quad in the world to fly a helicopter, and and that's all about flying to school, flying a helicopter into a school, and landing on the oval, hopping out in your chair, call the kids over, telling your story, and and you got to speak in their lingo. Primary primary school kids, you know, you've got to be at but Kurt. And then um, the older guys, you throw a bit more of the trauma in. And then hop back in your machine and fly off. And, you know, hopefully he's a fly away. Jeff Sam can do what he's doing. I can do anything. So, and I'm not trying to show off. It's just, it's, it's trying to demonstrate. Go and get on a four-wheel motorbike and then show people you've done it. Get on a motor and show them you've done it. Convert all the machine and show them you've done it. Don't tell them you can fly a helicopter. Go and fly the bloody thing yourself. And then, yeah. You know, and I can see that. Lead by example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess, in a sense, I am a bit of a leader, hopefully. And um, we're well, the eldest child, so destined to be a leader. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> I don't know. One day, when I leave the earth, hopefully, if I've made a 
We paused here for lunch, Sam having left a huge dent, a massive impression on me. With a stomach full of steak and salad, thank you Sam and Jenny, we brought the microphones out again. I won't get a word in here, but I'll just, um, I'll set the thing up for you that, so I was starting to rebuild my life and then was, the only hurdle I had left to jump was finding a girl. And as I said, I'd had relationships over the years, but was now in my 30s and was really starting to think the journey was going to be solo one. Well, as I said, you never know what's around the corner, do you? So I was rung by, rung by a reporter one day to ask me whether I'd do an interview with him over the phone. And for some reason, I said no. And he said, that's fine, leave it with me, I'll be back in touch. So I hung up and said, I'll never hear from him again. Well, I was wrong. Three days later, a girl called Jenny Ring. And that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, so I guess the other thing that, you know, was critical was the fact that it was the ABC, which meant they did have a regional reporter because like most of the stations you would have done, Correct. radio stations Rural. you would have spoken to before, mm. didn't have anyone that it's could come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was based in Tamworth, which was only three hours from where you lived. So I guess the opportunity was there. So I rang up and I um, organised to come up and see you and do an interview. And I gather you kind of started thinking about what I might look like. I painted a picture, didn't I? Yeah, because he started listening to me on the radio in the morning and started imagining what I look like. So how did you imagine me? Well, you have this this wonderful bubbly voice that you start painting a picture of a goddess and I imagine you, you know, brown and tan and six feet tall and as everyone, every morning went on, you got taller and taller and darker and darker. <laughs> So finally, to the, I you know, built this built the image of this goddess who was going to arrive and interview me. So I thought, I'll go down and wait for a front gate. Down I went on the bike. Got down there, and long after I got down there, I could see the swirl of dust in the distance and up drove the car. And I was sitting on the bike and so I leant forward and was eagerly peering through the windscreen to see there was a dark, albany, albanyish colour. So straight away, the dark olive complexion disappeared. So she drove up, she pulled up right beside me as I was sitting on my bike and shone my under window. And in a split second before there was even a word said, I knew she wasn't going to be all that tall because the distance between the seat and the steering wheel was about 15 centimetres. <laughs> sure enough, I followed her up to the house and out hopped. So I'd followed her up, she'd pulled up. She hopped out of a car and out hopped a red-haired, freckly, sawn-off little runt. But there was a spark. So she stayed the night, she did the interview, she went back, she put it together. It, uh, it aired, she had a great response from it. And then we just started this relationship that lasted probably a couple of years. We used to run yeah, each other from like time to time. A friendship, not a relationship. Or a friendship, yeah. sorry, yeah. And you would come and say, Mum and Dad and I, yeah, if you're up our yeah. way. And, um, well, are you thinking about it, Jenny, being more than a friendship? Well, not initially, but the really weird thing is, like when I first saw Sam, I mean, you know, you, you're a journalist and you're being professional. You're not really thinking about, you know, um, romance. But I did, I do remember seeing him and thinking, oh, he's very good looking. <laughs> so I did kind of note, notice that straight away. Um, and then I guess, you know, we did, we get on the phone and we never ran out of things to talk about. Like that was right from the very beginning. And, and it's really weird because 
I remember once saying, I was chatting to a friend of mine about, oh, you know, whether I'm ever going to meet anyone because like Sam, I was in my early 30s at that stage thinking I wasn't going to find anyone either. And I said um, to, to her, oh, I wonder if I ever will meet anyone. She said, what about Sam Bailey? You talk about Sam differently to everyone else. So it's funny because it's kind of like other people kind of saw it before I did. Yeah. And, I, and I think maybe that was because... I think I had to kind of get to know Sam as a person because he was in a wheelchair. And, and of course, once you know Sam as a person and you get to know him and the wheelchair disappears. But I think I did need to get to that point because up until then, the only people I'd known in wheelchairs were old, sick people. Yeah. And I had to understand that someone could be in a wheelchair and be young and healthy and, you know, just couldn't do a few things. But, you know, we, we've all got things we can't do, do. I mean, I can't reach the top shelf of the supermarket. You know, to me, it's kind of no different, really. I might just butt in here and say, you had a dog, Winky, who was black and tan Kelpie, who you thought the world of, and she worked it out before you did. Yeah. I was in Tamworth Day with a mate of mine, and I got up one I got up one morning, and I thought, I'm going to go and ask her out, just see what, see what happens. I rang her up. She lives on the outskirts of, on the other side of town. So I hopped in my ute and I drove out and drove into the driveway and out he came. Anyway, we kick-started a conversation. And after a little while, I thought, well, nothing invented, nothing going. So I took a deep breath. I said, Jenny, are you doing anything for lunch today? Could I come over and pick you up? And could we go out and we um, could we go out and have go down the street and have fun estate? The country music festival was on at the time. Be any amount of entertainment on the Would you like to do that? She said, oh, Sam, look, you won't believe it. I think I was covering the radio, wasn't I? Yeah, the national finals were on for the radio. So I could... Oh, no, we were going out with friends for lunch. And then that night I was covering the national radio. So both attempts to ask me out. That's right. You know, house full of mates. You're going out that, that for lunch. Uh, what are you doing for dinner, Jen? Oh, you won't believe it. I'm, I've got working. to take my recorder out and record some stories from the program first thing in the morning. Mm. So there I sat, slapped over the head twice. <laughs> anyway, her dog, Winky who was lying in the shade in front of in, in the shade of a tree in front of me you hopped up walked around the side of me and literally hopped up and she put her two paws on my arm as i was resting on the door of the ute and she started licking my arm like there was no tomorrow anyway we were we were, we were through part way through a conversation and jan abruptly stopped looking down at her dog said that is a that is incredible that is i have never seen that before and I looked up and I thought why is that and she said my dog never ever, ever takes to anyone that quickly. I looked up and I thought to myself, well, we should take some bloody lessons from your dog. <laughs> and that's a true story, and I don't know, because, I mean, my dog didn't particularly like men normally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, um, you know, it was really unusual. So I don't know whether she knew what was ahead or not. I don't know. Intuition? I yeah. have no idea. And then, of course, then when Sam finally um, decided to take things a little bit further he sent me a bunch of, ro- of flowers at work and, and signed them from his, one of his dogs <laughs> so dogs were very involved in our early relationship and then the first time he took me out testing order that was yeah, yeah and then the first time he took me out well it wasn't kind of a date was to an ex-girlfriend's place <laughs> just in case you you needed to rub it in that maybe i didn't realize how, well i was how getting I no vibe, no reaction no it's just <laughs> I don't feel much happening here. <laughs> so, and I, and I didn't even think about the thought that I was taking her out to an old girl, who, and we were still pretty good mates. 
So out we went. <laughs> and we, um, we had lunch out there, didn't we? Yeah, and I'm sitting at one end of the t- very long table with the, you know, the, the mother <laughs> of this friend. And her and her sister are all over Sam at the other end of the table. I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure I feel very good about this. <laughs> anyway, we did finally get our act together. We did. And look, to be honest then, once, once we've been going out for, look, honestly, a couple of weeks into actually going out romantically we knew we'd spend the rest of our lives together it was it really was that quick but sam's dad i think he had a few reservations he um one day obviously making some sort of excuse to you know be able to have a chat to me asked me if i could drive him up the back paddock to pick up a tractor or something and he just said to me do you realize what you're taking on but you know it was just never an issue for me that sam was in a wheelchair and a quadriplegic I don't know. I mean, I was very independent, I think, as a person. And so, I mean, I was very capable because I'd been single for so long and I had horses and I was, you know, driving all over the countryside eventing and everything and going home and helping mum and dad on the place. And so I guess in that sense, I didn't need a man to do stuff for me because I could do everything myself. And, um, and, you know, it just wasn't an issue at all. Because I guess, as I said, by then, to me, Sam didn't, didn't have a disability. He was just... Yeah. Like just, he, just him, the yeah. way he is, yeah. What do you think in those first couple of weeks then it was that you knew that you'd spend the rest of your life? I wasn't thinking it through like that. I just knew I was, I just knew he was the one, you yeah. know, it was as simple as that. And look, I can remember saying to, when I was going out with someone else earlier in my life, saying to my best friend um, from school's mum one day, I said, how do you know when it's the right person? She said, well, you just know. And I said, yeah, but how do you know? She said, well, you just do. And of course, I obviously hadn't met that person because I would have understood what she's talking about. So I guess by the time, you know, at at this point, it was just absolute. You just know when it's the right person. Um, And so I guess that's why it was so easy because, so I I mean, we didn't really analyse it. We just knew we were meant to be together. Yeah, and couldn't wait to be together because back then, you know, we, we didn't live together at all, unlike what happens today. Um, well, it was very, my circumstance, I was living with mum and dad and, you know, it was all a bit hard, really. And I just couldn't wait, we couldn't wait to be, we couldn't wait no. to get married and just get, <laughs> We didn't have a together. honeymoon because all we wanted to do was just live together. <laughs> We didn't want to go away. We just wanted to come home to Pine Hills and unpack. And uh, Because I'd moved all my gear up here, you know, the back of a horse truck <laughs> and dumped it, basically. So we arrived at this house with, like, we had to put our bed together when we got home so we could sleep in it that night and start unpacking and cleaning and making the house livable, didn't we? Where's a fork? And yeah. Th- move. We don't need milk. <laughs> move out the ruse and the kidneys and everything that had moved into the house. <laughs> well, this place, Mum and Dad and I bought this place back in 91, so I sat idle for 10 years. And it's funny because I used to come over here on my bike and ride around and just, oh, so sad, it's such a beautiful old home, no one's living here. And I do, I do it a lot. I used to come over here and when I was you know, checking someone, I just got right around the house. And, and you probably met out the front to see that it's got a really nice front of the house. And um, little did I know that, you know, 10 years later, you'd be the one that's back here giving it some love yeah. and attention. And, yeah, no, it's great. And we've just loved doing that. It, it was just, but those, you know, those first few weeks in getting home, we're doing the colour work together. And yeah. Jenny gave me a hand the cropping, so she, I taught her to drive all sorts of bits of machinery and but then I suppose the other fork in the road for us was the Australian story, really, because, um, I mean, we probably would have just lived along here and 
you know, been farmers and I might have done a bit of freelance journalism, which I did do bits of in those early days. But, I mean, the Australian story is really the thing that started the public speaking because, you know, the local Rotary Club and Lions Club and everyone then started ringing us and saying, oh, can you come and speak? And initially, obviously, free jobs like that. And it just sort of grew from there. And well, you had to find, I had to find my feet, first of all, and just see what works and what didn't work. And, and then, yeah, and then we just... It, it sort of escalated from there. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden we... The Speaking Bureau... Contacted found us. Found out and, about us and, and then... You know, and so that's, and I suppose it was also about that point that we sort of thought, you know, will will we do, do IVF? Will we try to have children? I mean, we couldn't do it naturally, obviously. And so we thought, oh, well, we'll give that a crack. And so we did. We only tried once. Look, I'm sure if we had really wanted to, you know, we could have had kids, I'm sure, like we, if we kept going down the IVF track. But I mean, by then I was in my late 30s and, you know, I had friends whose kids were leaving home. So I thought, well, you know, it was a fork in the road. And we just made the decision when it didn't work the once, we thought, look, let's um, let's pursue the speaking. People would say, say, oh, you should write a book. And so it was kind of that point where we just said, well, if we, we can't do the speaking and write your story and do all that, if, if we've got children. Yeah. So we kind of made the decision that that's the direction we'd go in. And, and, you know, I guess what's really wonderful about it is because Sam speaks to school kids is that we're kind of hopefully affecting lots of kids. You know, we've given up having them ourselves, but hopefully we're making an impact on other kids, which is, you know, the reason that we didn't have them, I suppose. And that's life. You know, nothing's perfect. That's one of the things about life. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. There's always something you've got to give up or compromise to have it and that's our compromise and look to be honest as long as I've got a horse and a dog I'm happy <laughs> I don't have to have kids and I think we can make a bigger dent in the world now we're doing yeah as I said this morning it's individually we could never have done what we can do together oh no no and actually we're a little bit unique in a sense um I mean not entirely unique but there's not many people in a position like we are where if something happened to one or the other of us, we couldn't do what we do. Like we are, It's very much a thing where it only works because it's the two of us. And if we'd married different people, it wouldn't have been the same. Like it's very much, you know, I guess the fact I was a journalist, I could write a book, you know, Sam had a story to tell. The fact that he proposed to me live on the radio so everyone heard about it. And, and you stumped that morning? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for a little while. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. <laughs> Even now we will meet people who will who sort of go, oh, we heard your proposal. Or Remember that day? Was that Townsville where we were going along the Esplanade? Remember that? I was pushing you along in the wheelchair and this woman said something as we went past. Was that in Townsville? And yeah, yeah. yeah and I sort of stopped because I thought she spoke to us and, she, and we sort of stopped and looked back at her and she said, oh, I know you too. I saw you on Australian Story and it was really was quite a, you know, I read your book. And so you just never quite know where you're going to, you know, meet people that have heard the story and it's touched them in some way. It's pretty special. And I often think, like I was very focused on my goal and like you know I did work experience at a local newspaper and I wanted to do is be a journalist and I had a cadetship you know in February the year after I left school and you know and within two years I got a graded journalist position and then I got another promotion eight months later and then I got went to London worked on a newspaper and then I got an editor's job when I came back and then I 
wanted to get into the ABC and, you know, I got a job with the ABC. Like I always was so focused on my career, but there was never anything on my, you know, vision of my career, travel around Australia <laughs> with an amazing husband, public speaking and, and write his, help him write his story. Like, you know, like I just think it's amazing how, and I'm sure that was never on your vision of how your life was going to be. Never. Um, so you never quite know what's around the corner and where things are going to lead you. We're very lucky. But, I mean, you did struggle a little bit when we first got back here, didn't you, after we got married? Yeah, I did. Because you lost I'd lo- I'd... the title. Yeah. Black. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and that was before we'd started speaking and all that was happening. I mean, there's always that. This, look, you know, sports stars, politicians, um, anyone who's got any profile will experience that to some extent where when they give up that career where they're well-known and and it becomes part of their identity, or at least we think it's our identity, um, you struggle with that. But I guess what I eventually... And I, so I went from being, you know, Jenny Black, Rory Porter, everyone knew who I was... Well, not everybody. A lot of people knew who I was. To you know, Sam Bailey's wife, <laughs> where Sam was in really like loved by everybody locally. So I, you know, I mean, obviously people had heard me on the radio too, but it was more really what I thought than really what other people were thinking. But you know, I guess with time, I realised that it's not about what you do; it's about who you are and it's how you treat people. Mm. And that's honestly, when I realised that, that all the rest of that was not an issue anymore it went away but um you know i had to learn that lesson and i guess everybody who has a profile at some stage has to realize that you are replaceable and it's not really about what you do it's how you are when you treat people the way you but treat i guess people. it's everyone like even becoming a parent can be an identity absolutely you know? so then yeah. you have to let go of these identities that you know and both of you were looking at letting go of the identity of being a husband or a wife mm. as well. So, or letting go of being a, yeah. a mum or a dad. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And look, I guess that's true in all your life. Everyone's life, if you've got dreams of being something, um, whether you achieve it or not, it's letting go. Sometimes you, that doesn't happen and you've got to let go of that and accept that and move on. And, the, and then there's opportunity, like Sam was saying earlier, if you close one door, mm. it's opening Oh, absolutely. But it might not happen straight away. That's yeah. one of the things. You do sometimes have to be patient. Very patient. <laughs> you have discussed the helicopter. You have. And look, I'm sure there's probably, there's probably a lot of people out just saying, oh, yeah, but you won't do it. And I'm sure they would. You know, 14 years has been a... People have stopped asking. People have stopped asking. Because yeah, I think they've <laughs> waiting up on for us. you to say, well, no, it's red light. But, We've given up on it. Yeah. But the good thing is because, again, the two of us, and because we're such a great partnership, you know, on those occasions when... Maybe Sam thought, well, maybe I should give up. I've said, no way. I'm here for, you know, no. I'm, and, and then there's been times when I've said, well, maybe you shouldn't. He goes, no, no, no. So, again, that's how great we are. That Generally, we're not both, you know, struggling at the same time and we support each other. And, um, you know, I sort of, I mean, I know it's going to happen. It's got to happen. Mm. You've told kids all no, over Australia you're going to do it. You don't have any choice. <laughs> uh, Well, what better place to end episode one of How Do You Decide than there with the words, you don't have any choice. And honestly, when it comes to Sam and Jenny Bailey, you really don't have a choice. You just love them. If, like me, you want more of Sam and Jenny, you can buy their book, Head Over Heels, and stay up to date with their events at sambailey.com.au. Thank you, Sam and Jenny. 
I'll be back next week with another episode of How Do You Decide? Until then, make good choices.